Welcome and good morning. Father Thomas Joseph White is a Dominican priest who lives and teaches sacred theology at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C., where he is also the director of the Thomistic Institute. A native of southeastern Georgia, Father White unaccountably studied at Brown University rather than Princeton. And while at Brown in Providence, Rhode Island, where coincidentally there's a Dominican University, Providence College, he was converted to Catholicism during his senior year, influenced by reading, among others, Flannery O'Connor, Aristotle, John Henry Newman, Hans Urs von Balthasar, and Pope John Paul II. Father White did his doctoral studies at Oxford University, where his research focused on Aquinas' metaphysics and arguments for the existence of God. He's the author of numerous scholarly articles and books, including the recently published book, The Light of Christ, An Introduction to Catholicism, which is already being acclaimed a spiritual classic. And, as it happens, you can purchase some of those books this morning on the table at the back of the room, and Father will gladly inscribe them for you after the last conference at this table. In addition to his scholarly endeavors, Father plays the banjo and the dulcimer in a band of Dominican friars, which is called the Hillbilly Thomists. <laughs> and in, th in three days, their new album will be available on iTunes. Think of it as stained glass bluegrass. <laughs> it is my pleasure to welcome to St. Mary's our Master of Recollection on this wintry Advent morn, Father Thomas Joseph White. hear me? Is this microphone doing well? Okay, great. It's wonderful to be in Greenville. My parents live in Bluffton, and I have never been to this side of the state. My mother was walking with me yesterday in the snow and said to a man on the sidewalk, we're from the south. And he said, ma'am, this is the south. And she said, no, we're from the deep south. You know, south, South Carolina. It doesn't snow there this time of year. He said, he chuckled. He said, I understand. Um, by way of advertisement, the Thomistic Institute puts on, which I direct with another uh, priest named Father Legg, the Thomistic Institute puts on uh, conferences all over the uh, United States in, in, on secular campuses, and we put up all our talks online. If you just Google SoundCloud Thomistic Institute, you can find hundreds of free talks on lots of Catholic subjects, including things like what I'm going to talk about today. And they're all available, they're free, you can give them to other people. Uh, they're good for people who are interested in Catholicism, as is the book that they're selling in the back, is a good book for people interested in Catholicism. Uh, so you can also find it on your iPod, if you look like iPod, you know, if you search Thomistic Institute. Just saying there's a lot of, it's not talks just by Dominicans, there's lots of great talks by others. So let me tell you what I want to do today. We have three brief conferences. We'll have breaks so we can, you know, pause and regain our poise and have some conversation and coffee. But three brief talks on the three, what are called the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. What is faith? What is hope? What is charity? So I want to touch on something about the essence of the Christian life. And what I want to do in each case is look at, in this time of Advent, how the Advent life, that's to say the life before the time of Christ's birth, 
of Mary and Joseph are examples to us of perfection in faith, hope, and charity. In other words, how do, how do Mary and Joseph show us what true faith, hope, and charity are, especially in the time of awaiting the birth of Christ or in the, the life they led live, leading up to the birth of Christ? Okay. We venerate the Virgin Mary and St. Joseph, of course, and have devotion to the Virgin Mary. I want to talk a little bit about why that is the case, given their perfection in the Christian life. So in this first conference, I'm going to talk, you know, these, I, I'm going to talk about half an hour, I hope. Dominicans never are very good at sticking to the script when it comes to disciplined speech, except the sisters. The sisters always, they're better, but they really are. But... Um, but we'll, I'm going to try to speak for half an hour, and then I'm going to leave time for questions and answers. It might be 35 minutes. And there are no, I'm not a snob about questions. There's no bad questions. Um, so when I open up the floor to questions, you should feel very uninhibited to ask those, okay? <clears throat> Let me talk about the mystery of faith. <clears throat> when Thomas Aquinas commented on the creed, the Nicene Creed, at the end of his life. He talked about the effects of faith, and I've given you handouts for each of these talks. So in the first uh, quote you have, he's talking about the nature and effects of faith. He says, the first thing that is necessary for every Christian is faith, without which no one is truly called a faithful Christian. Faith brings about four good effects. Okay, he's going to go on about the four effects, but the first one is what I want to note. The first is that through faith, the soul is united to God, and by it, there is between the soul and God a union akin to marriage. I will espouse you in faith, says the prophet Hosea to the people of Israel. This is an incredibly deep idea, that what supernatural faith, the faith that is given to us by our baptism, by the Holy Spirit, what supernatural faith gives us is a capacity, a possibility to be united to God in a way that is like unto a marriage between the soul and God. Of course, he's not speaking psychologically, like I feel, I feel like I'm married to God. That's not what he means. It's something deeper where in the mind and the, in the heart, we can grow in an awareness of intimate union with God in knowledge and love. I know who God is. I love God. God knows me. God loves me. And I am united to God by faith. Now faith, we call it a supernatural virtue. What does that mean? Well, virtue is easier. Virtue is like a capacity, a stable capacity to do something good. Like if you have the virtue of being a good violin player. That's an artistic virtue, an artistic capacity. You can just pull out the violin and start playing. If you can do that, most of us cannot. We look on with admiration. But then there's other virtues, like the virtues of the virtue of courage. You face a difficult situation, you stand fast, you show patience, you persevere, you get through it with, you know, some tolerance and arrive at the good. Right? So to have stable dispositions to do the good, supernatural virtues are virtues above the cast. Super in Greek just means above. So a virtue given to us from beyond or above our nature, like the capacity to believe in Christ. 
To believe in Christ is not possible for our human nature, unaided by grace. It's not something like learning math or being able to reason well, taking a class in logic or um, learning something about philosophy. I mean, it's a gift to know God and to know Christ by grace. But once you receive the gift, you can stably believe in Christ. We can make stable acts of faith in Christ. We can walk into the church, genuflect in front of the tabernacle, and say, I believe you're present in the Eucharist by judgment of faith. We have the stable capacity. Why do we have that? It was given to us in baptism. It may be a little sleepy in us. You know, we need to get it going and moving. Virtues can grow. You can get a, become a better violin player, a better mathematician, and, in fact, a better believer. You can grow by living the faith. Now, Aquinas says, where is faith given to us in the human person? If you receive faith, where do you receive it? Into your human person, in, by grace. Gallbladder. I receive the faith in my gallbladder. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. You can lose your gallbladder and you won't lose your faith. It has happened to some of us. It's not in the physical body, it's in the spiritual soul. And then the question would be, is it given primarily into the intellect or to the will? Into the, the two, there are two spiritual faculties in each of us. The intellect, by which we think and reason. The other animals don't have this. It's a spiritual capacity in us. And the, the will, free will, they go together. We will things, we, we make decisions based on things we're thinking about. We think about what, we're, what we want to think about. The will influences the mind, the mind influences the will. But we have the will in the mind. Where is faith received? Now, a lot of us would say, well, it's received, Father. It's received into the, in the heart. I believe in Jesus in my heart. So in the will. I will to believe. Wrong answer. It's interestingly true in a way, which I'll come back to. But Aquinas says, and this is not necessarily intuitive, faith is received into the mind. How does that manifest itself? Because faith gives me the capacity to make new judgments. There are coffee urns in the back of the, of the room. There are people sitting in chairs in the room. These are empirical judgments. There is such a thing as justice. Civic justice. Okay, that's not empirical. You can't measure that with a, you know, a measuring stick. You know, but you can't see it, justice. But that's true. There is civic justice. All right, that's a, that's a natural judgment. It's already a little more invisible. It's rooted in our human nature, but it's... I mean, you, somebody says to you, there's no such thing as justice. It's, a, it's made up by human beings, just language. It's, it's a little harder to argue with them than to argue that there are coffee urns in the back of the room. But then you get the supernatural judgments. Christ is really present in the Eucharist. The Virgin Mary is the mother of God. The Catholic Church is of divine institution meaning God, Christ founded the Catholic Church, okay? These are judgments of faith, but they're judgments. They're, there's true content to them. I believe, we say it, credo, I believe in the Holy Trinity, in the Incarnation, in the Atonement, in the Eucharist, in the Church, in the Virgin Mary as Mother of God. How do I make these judgments? By grace. That's faith allowing us to make new judgments. Now, faith, there's a famous saying in the European languages, you say it both in Italian, chiaroscuro, 
and you say it in French, la claire obscure, the clarity and obscurity of the faith. It's a traditional Mediterranean saying about the faith, the grace of faith, these judgments I'm talking about, that it's clear and obscure. Whoa, what does that mean? Well, in one way, the grace of faith, like for example, the belief in Christ, is something, once you receive it, it's pretty clear. It's like, I just know. I mean, I, I know I was given the grace, and I can, I mean, if you raised a Catholic, sometimes it's foggy, and you have to try to exercise it, you have to cut through a little bit the imagination and the worries and the anxieties and get back to practicing the faith. But when you start really to try to make judgments of faith, there's a certain light, there's a certain light of faith and the mind can make clear judgments. And there's darkness, obscurity. And there's times when the faith seems very obscure and that creates a trial of faith doesn't seem evident at all. <clears throat> There's days when a ca any good Christian will say, why do I believe all this? What is it? What am I doing? And it gets actually, when you're a priest or a religious, it can be more acute. It can be sharper at times that you feel the obscurity of faith. Because, I mean, you sort of put everything on the line, you know? I mean, there's not a second life. There's not a backup plan. You've sort of kicked away all the chairs on the deck of the ship and now you're just it's just you and Christ so the days the faith is obscure you feel it so everybody goes through that it's normal normal regime why why does God give us a faith that's both clear and obscure because God is sadistic he hates us he's cruel to us he wants us to suffer no wrong answer um, it has a pedagogical value it does try us, but it also invites us. So, a couple of answers. Blaise Pascal, the inventor of calculus, who you know was a deep Catholic soul, Pascal says, God gives each human being enough light that they can find him if they should so wish. And he leaves them in enough obscurity that they may turn away from him should they not want to embrace the faith freely. So Pascal is saying, there's enough light that if you seek God, you'll find him. There's enough obscurity that he's not forcing himself on you. So that's an interesting clue. There's a kind of mystery of freedom, of consent. God is a hidden God in part so that we will seek him. But he is not so hidden that we will not find him. If we seek God, we will find him. That's like what Christ says in the Gospels. Knock, and the door will be opened. Seek, and you will find. So something matters about seeking. God is the God who wants to be sought. The second thing is the judgment of faith is importantly above natural reason. So God's leading us into something we can't get to by our own power. I mean, it's not like something you could master. Knowledge of who God is in himself. I mean, what's... Why does God give us faith in the first place? So that we can actually know who God is in himself. Imagine, imagine there was a very charismatic personality in your home, in your town. And everyone was friends with them except you. And they said, people said, well, you know, he's a really nice person. You should get to know him. Yeah, yeah, I should, I should. Have you ever met him? No, no, I've never met him. Have you ever talked to him? No, I've never talked to him. Well, he's a really charismatic, nice person. Okay, okay, okay. And then you meet the person and then you get to know them. And 
Your cynicism is in fact not confirmed and you think, yeah, he is a nice person. Now you know the person personally. Or if you have a professor who teaches you something, you read their books and then you meet them and then you start to learn from them as a living person directly. Okay, that's the relationship we can have with God. It's one thing to infer that, yeah, God probably exists because the world exists and it seems to have a cause and human beings are seem spiritual and not just physical. There's something mystery of the human person that suggests that we're created by God. Okay, but that's not knowing God directly and personally. The mystery of faith is an invitation to know God personally, directly, as if through a conversation or marriage of the soul. But that means we're going above our natural capacities. It's not like being able to answer calculus problems or acquire natural competence at my work or in human friendships. It's, it's going out into something new, above our nature, super nature, above nature. And faith is carrying the mind up into God. So there's an obscurity because of that. And the final reason is because faith is consented to through the freedom of love. I grow in faith best by loving God more. The more I learn to love God, and in particular, you might say to love Christ in a personal way, the more I gain knowledge of Christ. So it's a very peculiar kind of knowledge. Not all knowledge depends on love. We know plenty of people who are very knowledgeable, not particularly loving. It's like lots of super intellectual people. They're not particularly kind. Sometimes it's the opposite. Like they're competent and they want you to know it and they're lording it over you. I am very intellectual, I am very competent. But the mystery of faith is such that you can't really grow it without growing in love. And so love is like a trust. There's an act of trust in love. When you like you believe someone else, a friend, a spouse, what they tell you. It's obvious, you believe in trust and in love. Well, with God, it's similar. You believe God, and in learning to trust God and love God, you grow in light, in understanding. And the faith can become more contemplative. Every Catholic kind of knows this because of the saints. We know there are people who are ahead of us. That's very helpful. That's kind of goal-oriented. The saints are contemplatives often. Their faith, they love God enough, they've cooperated with the love of God enough that they begin to gain a stable insight. Aquinas talks about it as the gift of the Holy Spirit that is understanding or intelligence. The gift of understanding is when the Holy Spirit so dwells in the person's soul that they, they are constantly gaining kind of deep insights into the mystery of Christ. And the saints Eighth, seventh grade, or sixth grade, playing violin, you're good, you're good, right? But we're practicing with 
they, if you play for them the best violin players, you're trying to give them good inspirations, aspire to more heights of perfection. And the saints are like that with us. They teach us to kind of aspire to deeper contemplative faith. So that's a little introduction to think about faith, and now I want to turn to the greatest of saints, who is the Virgin Mary. Now, the most important text for thinking about the Virgin Mary and her perfection of her faith is the Annunciation seen in Luke, which, if you look at the history of Christian doctrine, it's a lodestar passage. I mean, there's so much analysis of this Annunciation, and it's actually, you know, when I was younger and I started studying theology, I thought, well, you know, the fathers of the church, they found a, they found a lot in this passage. You know, like, they invested a lot in this passage. I mean, maybe too much. You know, that's the suspicion. But as I've gone on and taught this over and over through the years, I've begun to believe that actually it's all in there. Uh, sometimes you have to read the Word of God a long time before you acquire fixed, con deeper convictions about it. You can't just read it one time and think, oh, yeah, I've been there, done that. I read the Annunciation. Yeah, I read that one. It's like, hey, yeah, I know about the Annunciation. <laughs> If you spend your lifetime reading it, you, you start to think St. Luke is giving us a lot. Often when God gives, he gives a plenitude at the beginning. Look at like the Franciscans, the first generation, the radiant holiness of St. Francis, stigmata, the people who followed him, the radicalism spread tens of thousands of Franciscans within 20 years all over Europe. God often gives plenitude at the beginning. It's like seeds. He just pours down seeds onto the earth. Fruitfulness. And I think that that's what happens in the Annunciation. There's a, in Luke's, in Luke's depiction of it, there's like a, a, a wealth of theology, of truth. So to turn to the passage, <clears throat> in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, O hail, hail, O favored one. This is the RSV translation. I'll talk about it in a moment. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus which means savior. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his, of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how shall this be? It, since I have no husband, but literally the Greek is since I do not know man. And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called, uh, will be ho called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Okay, so I want to begin with um, the, the phrase, Hail, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Actually, the Greek is a 
past perfect participle, um, which says, Hail Mary, you who have been perfectly graced, you who have been fully graced, meaning if something has already taken place in her prior to this time in a perfect way. Now Jerome, St. Jerome, in the Vulgate, put it gratia plena, Hail Mary, full of grace. It's a simplification of that construction. It's not a falsification. It's a very good translation. It's totally defensible. It's a little bit, you might say, um, succinct, shortcut, because it's actually more perfect to say, I mean, just on the grammar level, Hail Mary, who have been perfectly graced. The church teaches that the Virgin Mary, you know, there was a lot of argument about this. I mean, already in the fourth century, Jerome is, and Augustine ask, was she conceived in original sin? Everybody is, and we're saved from Christ, by Christ, but were, was she conceived in original sin? But and they, and the, the basic presumption is, the Virgin Mary did not sin herself. That's already an acquired view of the Catholic Church in the fourth century. They're not, they don't actually think she actually sinned. So they have a very high conception of her, her sanctity in the early church. They simply are wondering if she was conceived in sin and then received grace very early on. And so then some people argue in the womb, she was so-called sanated from the effects of original sin. It's like the grace of baptism early on in her womb. Or some people, even like St. Ambrose, who was also 4th century, argue that she was raised from her own conception. That's why we celebrate, that's one reason we celebrate this day on the 7th of December, because he's like the great doctor of the Immaculate Conception. And we have celebrate her Immaculate Conception on the 8th. And there was a debate in the Middle Ages. And eventually, because of the Franciscan school, they strongly emphasized the idea that the fullness of grace was given to her from the first moment of conception in anticipation of her being the mother of God and in anticipation of the merits of the cross of Christ. It's not a medieval idea. It, I mean, it has its seeds from the beginning in the early church's thinking about the Virgin Mary. But ask yourself the question, why would she be full of grace? Why would she have been perfectly graced from the beginning? Why would she be conceived without the wounds that we have incurred of original sin? Well, the answer, the traditional answer, is because of this, this scene we've just read, so that she might be disposed by grace to be the worthy mother of God. There's a, a way in which her soul has been prepared in faith to welcome the incarnation. The Virgin Mary is not first and foremost a disciple of Christ in her flesh, although she is, because she's his mother. But she's first and foremost a disciple of Christ in her mind, in her heart. So in her mind and in her heart, she's been prepared by the perfection of grace to give her life to God. Now here's another ancient tradition. I mean, and this one's even older, very clearly in the earliest church, that the Virgin Mary consecrated herself to God from the earliest dawn of her rational life, or sometime, as you might say, an early teenager. She gave her life to God in holy virginity. 
That is a very wide, that's a very widespread tradition in the early church. She's called the Virgin Mary for a reason. Ever virgin. And in the second century, you have a story about this. It's a, more of a, like, you might call it arguably a pious legend, but it's, it shows the faith of the early church. That they have a story about the whole proto-evangelium of James, where she picks this is a second century story. Okay, so this is like a few generations after the apostles. They have a little story of her going into the temple and can consecrate herself to God. It's really hard to understand Luke's meaning in this passage if this is not the case because he has her asking she's betrothed and he has her asking how will this be for I do not know man well people in the ancient world knew where children came from people in every time and place know where they come from and she's betrothed to a man and she's saying how will this be because I do not know man so there's some consecration or some prior choice that has been taken here. This is a very standard view in the ancient church. I gave you uh, Augustine's writing on this from the 4th century in his Treatise on Virginity, chapter 4. Uh, I'm reading from the handout. Her virginity also itself was on account on this account more pleasing and accepted in that it was not that Christ being conceived in her rescued it beforehand from a husband who would violate it. It follows the church. Speaking about, about you know, marriage almost as, I mean, Augustine, of course, has a very complicated view of human sexuality, but actually, Augustine wrote a great defense of the good of marriage against the Manichees who despised it. He was a Manichee before he became a Catholic, and he wrote the most important defense of marriage in the ancient church and its dignity. Himself to preserve it, but before he was conceived, chose it, already dedicated to God as that from which to be born. The Virgin Mary is like God's chosen place to enter into the world through her consent. In Latin, fiat, let it be done to me according to thy word. Through the Virgin Mary's gift of herself to God in her consecration and then in her consent to the mystery of faith in the incarnation, God came into the world. He chose to become incarnate in, you might say, cooperation with the Virgin Mary. This is shown by the words which Mary spoke to in answer to the angel announcing to her conception how, she says, shall this be, since seeing as I know not a man, which assuredly she would not say unless she had before vowed herself unto God as a virgin. You find this kind of reasoning in Ambrose. And Ambrose and Augustine. Ambrose, who's Augustine learned, Ambrose was Augustine, one of Augustine's teachers. They're both fourth century. They're both in Milan. Augustine later moves to northern Africa. But when he's a young man, he converted to Christianity in his 30s, listening to Ambrose preach among other influences. One thing that Ambrose points out is that if you look at this passage, in the context of Luke's larger theology, what preceded it? You had Zechariah, who, and Elizabeth, Elizabeth is barren, and Zechariah is in the Holy of Holies doing his rotation as a priest in the temple, and he's given the annunciation of the birth of a child by his elderly wife, or his wife who is beyond childbearing heirs. Just how can this be? He's skeptical. And he's 
prophesied by the angel. Um, the contrast between Zechariah and Mary is purposeful. Where Zechariah was doubtful, the Virgin Mary is believing. Where Zechariah asks a question in skepticism, how can that happen? My wife is not able to bear children. The Virgin Mary asks the question respectfully, with faith-seeking understanding. How will this be for I do not know him? On the surface, the two questions may seem similar, and they are in some ways, but the inner spirit is clearly different if you look at Luke's sort of deeper motif. It's like the diptychs in the medieval churches where you have images of one scene of the gospel here and another scene there. First, we show Zechariah imperfectly believing. Then we're shown the perfection of the Virgin Mary's faith. And it's interesting that actually in her scene, she gets the most rational foundation for the whole thing, even though she's less skeptical. She's not skeptical. So she believes, seeking understanding, how will this be for I do not know man? The Most High will overshadow you by the power of God. And then he says, for nothing is impossible to God. Now, you may say, Father, I'm not, I don't know, incarnation, I mean, God coming human, the Virgin Mary, crucifixion, resurrection, is it really true? Well, if it is true, we can only know about it through faith, and if we receive faith, it's easy to believe it, because faith is a supernatural grace that allows us to believe things. Children can believe it. You can believe it if it's, you have a grace Who God is 
through faith. And I'll be finishing now. The Virgin Mary's contemplative faith is confirmed and strengthened and deepened by her union with her knowledge of the Word of God in the Incarnation. So if you ask yourself, what do I want to talk about this? You ask yourself, when was it the first time someone came to know the Holy Trinity in an explicit way? Where, when in Israel is the Holy Trinity full, first fully unveiled? The mystery of God's inner life is the Holy Trinity. Well, again, in this passage. Because the angel mentions that the Son of God will become incarnate, the Son of the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the three persons of the Holy Trinity are named here, and they're made explicit to the Virgin Mary's faith. You might say, in Mary, Israel becomes Trinitarian. In Mary, belief in the God of Israel becomes a belief in the God who, who is our Father, who has sent the Son into the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we now begin to understand that there is eternal wisdom in God, in eternal spirit, the eternal inspiration of love, Holy Trinity. This is contemplative faith. The faith that knows God personally and intimately as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we can grow in our faith in the knowledge of the three persons. It's interesting as a priest when you talk to people about their spiritual life to listen to which person of the Trinity they pray to. So most people talk about praying to Christ, the Son, praying to the Son, praying to the eternal Word, praying to man, or a lot of people pray to the Father. Talk about God being their Father, and the sense of God's fatherhood. And then there's a minority of people who are Holy Spirit people, and they pray to the Holy Spirit. And there's always something a little peculiar about these people. You say, do you want to look? Yeah, okay, yeah. I had a grandmother who was a Holy Spirit person. She always talked about the Holy Spirit. And, um, but the truth is, we should pray to all three persons. So it's a thing which you may not have intentionally thought about, but you might intentionally direct yourself occasionally to, uh, if you are anemic in your prayer to the Holy Spirit, or you're anemic in your prayer to the Father, or you're anemic in your prayer to Jesus. But you can ask the Holy Spirit to deepen and intensify your knowledge of the person. You can say, Almighty God, give me a greater sense of your paternity, your fatherhood, revealed to me in the Son. Lord Jesus, give me a greater sense of your divinity, of your presence, your power. Holy Spirit, give me a greater sense of your presence in my soul, as my creator and sanctifier. Make me docile, enlighten my mind, strengthen my heart, so that I may come to know your radiant presence. More deeply. And in that sense, the church is Mary in her faith. We follow the footsteps of Mary. She consented in faith to the mystery of the incarnation. Let it be done to me according to thy word. Resolution. Fiat. Let it be done. She doesn't say, How will people perceive my pregnancy with regards to my fiance? What will happen to me and how will this all finish? Will this be a happiness? Will this be a happy mess, messianic mission? Or will this be an unhappy messianic mission? Will the Son of 
He talks about it as the son of David. Will the inheritor of David's kingdom be well received? Or will it go badly? She stands also later at the cross. John's Gospel, chapter 19. And there too in her heart she says, Eon, let it be done to me according to thy word. She follows through the whole thing. The mission of Christ to the end. Standing in faith alongside Christ. And so we follow after her in the church, in and through the joyful mysteries of life, but also the sorrowful mysteries. Standing at the cross, awaiting the resurrection. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me open the floor for questions, and um, I'll maybe take 10 minutes or so of questions, and then... We'll take a break.